I first preached my first sermon as a pastor on the third Sunday of January 1975. I've pastored seven congregations since that time, and I've never done what I'm going to do today. I have threatened to do it. I've said, no, I'm going to do this before I go to heaven, so I guess after this I can go to heaven next week. Um, actually, I can go to heaven anytime. It's okay. Um, but um, this is going to be a difficult... You, you've got to think. If you came to church to snooze, well, I don't know why you're here. Um, but this is a thinking sermon, but this is a very, very controversial issue. I've never heard a pastor cover both of these um, sides ever in my life, ever. And uh, maybe you have, uh, but I haven't. So I hope you have a note sheet. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation. There are two principal soteriological systems inside evangelical Christianity. And those systems are Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism and Arminianism. John Calvin, born 1509, died 1564, was a Protestant reformer and a French theologian. Calvin's father wanted him to be a Catholic priest. He had been raised in Catholicism, but he chose to be an attorney instead. And then over time, he became a theologian and a pastor. He converted from Catholicism to Protestantism around 15. 32 AD. And then at age 27, he recorded his theological findings in a publication called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's considered a classic. It was a thorough defense of the Protestant Reformation from a theological perspective. Piece of trivia, John Calvin actually created the first public school. During the Middle Ages, education was limited to the elite so that only the aristocracy received a formal education. Calvin argued that the general population deserved a classical liberal arts education, so he established an academy with seven grades and then a seminary past that. John Calvin is such a famous name in church history that there is virtually no encyclopedia or historical book, both religious and sacred, from that uh, time period, or that comments on that time period, that doesn't mention John Calvin. It's interesting, being that famous, he was buried in an unmarked grave. There is now a traditional gravesite there to remember him, but he's not actually buried there. Calvin's teachings were arranged into a soteriological system we now know as Calvinism. Calvinism. Calvin didn't create that name himself. It was a sign of that name after he died. John Calvin was a flawed man, as are all men. He did some things we would find extremely upsetting and oppose such as consenting to, not participating in, but consenting to, agreeing to the execution of a heretic named Michael Servetus. Calvin had adopted that unfortunate response from Catholicism as the Catholic Church uh, executed heretics for centuries. But our focus this morning isn't on 
the man John Calvin, but on this soteriological system called Calvinism. Sometimes being a Calvinist is said to be the same as being Reformed because Calvinism became popular after the Protestant Reformation. Some people use those words on an interchangeable basis as if those words are identical and mean the same thing. That's a misunderstanding. People that are Reformed are Calvinists, but not all Calvinists are Reformed. Probably most Calvinists aren't Reformed. Calvinism is actually a subcategory of Reformation theology. To be Reformed is a more complicated subject we don't have time to get into. Jacobus Arminius, born 1560, died 1609. Jacobus was a Dutch theologian and university professor that opposed Calvin's teachings. I need to interject a footnote. Jacobus Arminius wasn't from Armenia. Different spelling, different word. Armenia is a nation in Western Asia and is a former member of the Soviet Union. The most recognizable Armenian to us is probably Kim Kardashian, and that is most unfortunate. Um, Arminius started as a Calvinist himself and even studied at Calvin Seminary in Geneva. But after a careful study of Scripture, he felt that some aspects of Calvinism were unbiblical. It was unfortunate, but he died a premature death at age 49, not long after he made his findings public. And then after his death, in 1610, some of his ministerial associations, 46 of them to be exact, put together his critique and criticism of Calvinism into published form called the Five Articles of Remonstrance. The Five Articles of Remonstrance. The word remonstrance means a forceful protest. A forceful protest. So these were five articles of serious, forceful protest against Calvinism. Those five articles were in response to the Belgic Confession, which was a Reformed theological statement. I might add the most famous Reformed Confession is the Westminster Confession from the Church of England in 1646. Uh, conservative Presbyterians used that confession extensively. Those articles of remonstrance brought about a famous church council called the Synod of Dort. The Synod of Dort. Synod was a council, a church council, and the Synod of Dort earned that name because that council met in Dordrecht, Netherlands. That synod lasted from November 1618 to May 1619. It consisted of 84 members and 18 political delegates representing different countries. That council was called together to settle a dispute between those theological fractions or factions in the Dutch Reformed Church. And because at that time, there was no separation of church and state. That theological debate literally divided Holland. And in that council on one side were the remonstrants. The remonstrants were Arminians, 
representing the teaching from Jacobus Arminius. On the opposite side were the counter-remonstrants, or Calvinists, representing the teachings from John Calvin. The remonstrants, those Arminians, presented a number of biblical reasons why, according to them, Calvinism was unacceptable. It caused so much contention between those factions that over time, those remonstrants all left the council proceedings, just left. And the counter-remonstrants, those Calvinists, remained to deliberate among themselves. The remaining members of those counter-remonstrants didn't find the remonstrants' arguments to be biblical and decided the Dutch church should adopt Calvinism. Since the synod had rejected the Arminian arguments, the delegates then drafted five points to counter those five articles of the remonstrance, and those five points then became known as the five points of Calvinism. So Calvinism was essentially a direct reaction to Arminianism. Theological Calvinism didn't actually originate at that synod, though, because most historians believe that basic Calvinistic teaching originated with the famous earlier church father, Augustine. Augustine, or some pronounce his name Augustine. Augustine, born 354 A.D. and died in 430. Augustine was a bishop at Hippo in North Africa, the Catholic Church has canonized Augustine as a a saint of the church. Church history is ugly. As a result of that synod's conclusions that the church adopt Calvinism and reject Arminianism, as a result of that, those Arminians were ordered to sign a document called the Act of Cessation. That document meant they agreed to stop all religious activities. Those men refused to sign such a disgusting document that essentially denied them religious freedom and because of that were labeled disturbers of the peace and then all of them were ejected from the Netherlands. Imagine. Then in 1625 things had gotten more sensible and the Arminians were permitted to return to the Netherlands and reestablish churches and schools. The Senate of Dort, that council, should act as a warning to us against establishing a state-sponsored church. Nothing good happens from that arrangement. There should be a sense of separation between church and state, not a separation of God from government, but a separation of church and state, meaning the state has no right to establish a state church or state religion, as did happen in the Netherlands. These opposing soteriological systems are now part and parcel to different modern denominations. Arminianism is now fundamental to denominations from traditional Methodism to Nazarenes to Christian and Missionary Alliance to Churches of Christ to different Pentecostal groups such as Assemblies of God and the Foursquare denomination and others. Understand something. Arminianism is not monolithic. 
Calvinism is not monolithic. Monolithic means a single, unified, uh, rigid, uniform whole. And in a sense, in soteriology, there's no one size that fits all. Not, our, not all Arminians are the same. Not our, all Calvinists are the same. If someone were to approach me and say, I'm a Calvinist, I would ask him to clarify what that means because there's so much variation. Um, the most famous Armenian from the past was probably evangelist John Wesley. One of the most famous Armenians in the present is a former Calvinist, um, an apologist, a brilliant man, a converted Jewish man named Dr. Michael Brown. Author C.S. Lewis was an Arminian. The man that has probably written more about Arminianism than anyone else is Dr. Roger Olson. He is an Arminian and a Baptist and a professor at Houston Baptist University. Dr. Jerry Walls is considered the greatest Arminian philosopher alive. He's also a professor at Houston Baptist University. Dr. James Dobson is also an Arminian. Now, Dr. Dobson is a psychologist. He's not a theologian, but his upbringing, being in the Nazarene church, um, would mean he's Arminian. Calvinists often quote a famous author named A.W. Tozer. Tozer was an Arminian. R.A. Torrey was the first pastor of the famous Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles, a historic church, and a dean at Biola University. He was an Arminian, and on and on and on and on. Calvinism is itself now part of other um, Protestant and evangelical denominations, such as some, not most, some Baptist groups, then traditional Presbyterians and Reformed churches, in addition to thousands of non-denominational churches. Most evangelical academia is Calvinistic to some degree. If someone were to attend a conservative evangelical seminary, chances are most of his professors would be Calvinistic to some degree. Most theological commentaries are from Calvinistic authors in part because most Arminians don't seem as interested in theological matters as are Calvinists. Brainiacs tend to be Calvinists because Calvinism is intellectually stimulating. Calvinists were critical to this nation's beginning. The pilgrims on the Mayflower, and I'm related to four of them, including the one that fell overboard and had to be rescued. Sound like someone related to me. Those pilgrims were religious separatists, meaning Englishmen that had separated themselves from the Church of England because according to them, the established church was unsalvageable. Those separatist pilgrims were Calvinists. The Puritans that immigrated here in large numbers were Calvinists. Calvinists founded four of the eight Ivy League universities. The man considered to be the greatest theologian in this nation's history was Jonathan Edwards. He preached that famous sermon, still studied in high school literature classes, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was a profound Calvinist. George Whitfield was the most famous evangelist in the New England colonies, and he was a Calvinist. The most famous Calvinist in more modern times was the London preacher John 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Outside of Jesus and Paul, Spurgeon is the most often quoted preacher of all time. Even Arminians love to quote Spurgeon. The famous apologist R.C. Sproul was a Calvinist. Extremely popular author John Piper is a Calvinist. Josh McDowell and John MacArthur consider themselves moderate Calvinists. The extremely popular author Randy Alcorn, he is a phenomenal author, said he's, quote, mostly Calvinist. Ken Ham, founder of Answers in Genesis and creator of the Ark Encounter, is a Calvinist. Evangelism Explosion is the most widely used evangelism, personal evangelism training curriculum in church history. It has been translated into 70 languages, and there have been millions of recorded conversions of those that have used that program. The man that created that program in 1962 was a Presbyterian pastor named D. James Kennedy, and he was a Calvinist. It seems, this is not a scientific statement, it seems though um, most evangelicals that have podcasts are Calvinist. Todd Friel of the intriguing program called Wretched Radio is a Calvinist. And on and on and on. Grace Church in Minden is a strong Calvinistic congregation as is the much smaller Carson Valley Bible Church in Minden. And don't misunderstand, that is not meant to be a criticism of those churches. Those are good, solid, evangelical churches. It's just that those congregations emphasize Calvinism, whereas others throughout this valley don't. Calvinism dominated Protestantism and evangelicalism for much of this nation's existence, but some form of Arminianism is now the dominant theological position in the modern church. In 1932, a Calvinist theologian named Lauren Boatner recorded the first use of an acronym that describes Calvinism. That acronym is called TULIP. I understand TULIP is a flower. That's what I understand. Uh, Calvinism can be summarized in that acronym TULIP. Let's address each of these five tenets of Calvinism and then compare them to Arminianism. Remember, Calvinism was created in a formal system as a reaction to those remonstrants or Arminians. I should also add that sometimes Calvinism is called the doctrines of grace. I should also add some more footnotes at this juncture. This has been the ultimate in-house debate. This has been the most controversial debate inside the church since the Reformation period some five centuries ago. To exhaust this subject would require an entire series of sermons guaranteed to result in mind-numbing mass confusion. And that is not an over-exaggeration. So we're just scratching the surface this morning, and we're avoiding some of the more technical parts to this argument, such as we aren't commenting on uh, plagius, semi-plagiism, triune harmonization to the atonement, infralapsarian, superlapsarian, determinism, indeterminism, fatalism, compatibility, catap- compatibilism, monergism, synergism, 
libertarian free will, and on and on and on. Trust me, it's complicated. Some will accuse me of oversimplification, probably a Calvinist. But it is virtually impossible to summarize the subject in one message unless it is radically abbreviated. I need to add both sides to this argument have substantial biblical support. But we don't have enough time to investigate those texts. This is just one sermon. And understand, I'm not arguing for either side of this debate. I believe I could present strong arguments for both sides. But that's not the reason for this message. This isn't about convincing someone to become a Calvinist or convincing someone to become an Arminian. This message is just intended to introduce us to this ongoing controversy. Calvinism versus Arminianism. One more thing. Calvinism and Arminianism both focus on a doctrine called election. And we will expand on that in just a moment. I'm going to use the word elect throughout this sermon. So remember, Christians are the elect. Non-Christians are the non-elect. God has elected some to salvation. Those are Christians. God has not elected others to salvation. Those are non-Christians. Let's start in on TULIP. T means total depravity. Total depravity, also called total inability. Man, in an unsaved state, is considered depraved. That means because of inheriting original sin from the first man, man is unable to come to God on his own. And both sides agree to that. The difference is in how each side defines this depraved condition. Being depraved doesn't mean unsaved people can't perform good and benevolent deeds because the unsaved can do those things. But those good deeds the unsaved perform don't earn them spiritual points and don't have eternal value. In an unsaved, depraved state, man cannot on his own believe on Jesus and receive salvation. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you, he, God, made alive, who were, notice were, past tense, this is before someone's salvation, who were dead in trespasses and sins. This verse reads that in our unsaved state, we were dead in our sins. The word dead is used in this verse as a grammatical metaphor. A metaphor is where something is described as something else, although it isn't actually that something. So in a figurative language, before salvation, unsaved man is considered dead in a spiritual sense. And both sides agree to that. But there's a difference in what that deadness means. Notice how Calvinism understands this problem of depravity. Since unsaved man is dead in his sins, and since a dead corpse cannot move, unsaved man cannot move toward God and is therefore totally unable to choose God. 
He cannot exercise free will and decide to believe on Jesus because his will isn't free to do that. That's because, according to Calvinism, man's will in his unsaved state is enslaved to his sin nature, so he is unable to come to God on his own. He is literally dead to God. That is total depravity or total inability according to Calvinism. The Arminian perspective is that man's depravity is partial and not total. Because to them that phrase we just read, dead in trespasses and sins, means something altogether different. The Arminian perspective agrees that in a figurative sense, unsaved man is dead in his sins. But that deadness doesn't mean, doesn't mean man is an immovable, inactive spiritual corpse. James 2 verse 26 defines the meaning of death. For as the body without the spirit is dead. Actual death occurs at the precise moment someone's spirit, someone's invisible self, separates from his body. The moment someone's spirit evacuates his body, he's considered deceased. So from a biblical perspective, to be dead means a separation has occurred. Death means separation. So inserting that definition for death into Ephesians 2 verse 1, this is how Arminians see man's problem. Arminians take on depravity means unsaved man is dead in his sins and that spiritual deadness means sin has separated him from God. Sin has separated him from God, but he still has free will. And with divine assistance, he is capable of choosing God. He, he still cannot choose God on his own. We said earlier, both sides agree to that. He still cannot choose God on his own apart from God assisting him to do that. But the Arminian perspective is that man is depraved and in bad spiritual shape, but he still has free will. Solution to depravity. Calvinism. To solve this problem of depravity, God regenerates the unsaved man. Regeneration means to rebirth, to be born a second time, to rejuvenate, to resurrect. God regenerates the unsaved man, meaning God resurrects him from his spiritual deadness and makes him alive. And once the unsaved man is alive in a spiritual sense, he receives salvific faith as a gift from God, and he is then able to believe on Jesus and receive salvation. So if someone does believe, it's because he was first regenerated. He was made alive so he could have the spiritual capacity to believe. So according to Calvinism, regeneration being born a second time, precedes, comes before believing on Jesus. But, and don't miss this part, according to Calvinism, God doesn't regenerate all people. God regenerates just the elect. 
He regenerates only those he has earlier chosen to salvation. So the non-elect person, this person doesn't choose to receive salvation because that person never wants to believe and he doesn't want to believe because he's not elect and as a non-elect person he's never regenerated and never made alive in a spiritual sense. Arminianism, to solve this problem of depravity, meaning a separation from God, God extends to the unsaved man prevenient grace. The word prevenient means before or preceding. Prevenient grace is the grace unsaved man receives from God that then enables him to believe on Jesus and receive salvation. Prevenient grace enables unsaved man to exercise his free will and believe and receive salvation. So according to Arminianism, believing precedes regeneration. It's the opposite order. And don't miss this. All men receive prevenient grace and not just the elect. But most people reject prevenient grace, so most people never believe on Jesus. That's the essence of T, total depravity. The next letter is U. U means unconditional election. Unconditional election, also called predestination. We need to first establish that all Christians, and both sides agree to this, All Christians have been elected, selected, and chosen to salvation. Sometimes the word predestination is used instead of election because predestination and election are essentially the same thing. 2 Timothy 2 verse 10, Paul said, Therefore, I endure all things, meaning he suffered the hardships of a man on a mission, in preaching the gospel and starting churches. He endured all of that for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Both Calvinists and Arminians agree that in the eternal past, outside of time, God elected, chose, selected some to receive salvation. Although in his unsaved state, in man's depraved state, no one deserves to receive salvation. None of us do. God still has elected some to be saved. That part is not in question. The question is how has God elected some to receive salvation? Calvinism teaches election is unconditional. Unconditional meaning there is no condition or criteria man must first meet before God considers him elect. Arminianism teaches election is conditional. Conditional meaning there is a condition and a criteria man must first meet before God considers him elect. And that condition is to choose him through believing on his son Jesus. Now, Calvinism, this is how Calvinism defines election. According to Calvinism, election is based 
on God's sovereign choice. Election is based entirely on God's sovereign choice. God is sovereign, meaning God is in absolute control. God is in charge. And as a sovereign being, God can do as he pleases, and it has pleased him to elect some to salvation and not elect others to salvation. God elected Susie and didn't elect Sam. God elected Teresa and Frankie. God didn't elect Michael and Michelle, and on and on. And remember, God didn't have to elect anyone. None of us deserve to be chosen. God's election is unconditional, meaning it has nothing to do with something meritorious or good he sees in someone. It has nothing to do with someone's potential response to him. God's election is completely arbitrary so that no one can boast as a Christian, God elected me because he could see that there was something special in me. No. Trust me, no. That's not how election happens. Arminianism. According to Arminianism, God's election is based on God's foreknowledge. God elects according to his foreknowledge. 1 Peter 1 verse 2. The statement is made, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The word foreknowledge, as we often use that word, means to know beforehand. To know about something beforehand. And since God is omniscient and has all knowledge, God knew from the eternal past who would choose him. So he elected those people based on their future positive response to him. That means according to the Arminian perspective, because God has all knowledge, he knew from the eternal past beforehand who would choose him. So he elected those people based on their future choice. Such as God chose Susie because God knew Susie would choose him. And on the surface, this verse does seem to teach that. But there's a problem here. Because that word foreknowledge does not just mean to know beforehand. If we examine how that word is used in both Old and New Testaments, we see that foreknowledge is used to mean to regard someone with favor. To regard someone with favor. So that word foreknowledge means God's special favor he shows towards someone as he does in arbitrarily choosing someone to salvation. That means to be elect according to foreknowledge is to be elect on the basis of God's favor or choice, not on the basis that God knew in advance who would be saved. So the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism on election is this. Calvinism teaches God chose us as part of his sovereign prerogative, God shows us of his own initiative based on nothing about us. And Arminianism teaches God chose us because he knew we would ultimately choose him. But Calvinists argue that's not election. 
Because we can know something is going to happen before it happens without choosing that something to happen. I know that the sun will rise in the morning. But I didn't choose the sun to rise in the morning. That was God's choice. So that's election. L means limited atonement. Also called particular redemption. Particular redemption. This is the most controversial of the five points. And we're going to expand on this in our First John series. In fact, next time, we'll all understand why I'm doing this this time. Calvinism. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was intended to secure salvation for the elect. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was intended to actually secure salvation for the elect and no one else. Meaning Christ didn't die for all people. Christ's death, according to Calvinism, was limited to those that are elect. One of the arguments, and there are multiple arguments, one of the arguments for Christ's atonement being limited to the elect is because Christ wouldn't waste his death on those people that ultimately don't want him. Now there's more to that, but that is a starter. Arminianism, Christ's sacrifice on the cross made it possible for all people to receive salvation. Christ's death, his sacrifice on the cross, made it possible for all people to receive salvation because Jesus died for all people. Meaning Christ's death was unlimited to both the elect and the non-elect. Christ's sacrificial death enabled God to forgive sinners on the condition that someone believes on his son Jesus. Jesus died for all people, but don't miss this, That doesn't mean all people are eventually saved. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth's logic was, if Christ died for all, then all will be saved. That's called universalism, and that is a false teaching. According to Arminianism, Jesus' death provided the means to receive salvation for the entire human race. And I would assume most of us have probably adopted that position. I means irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, some call this efficacious or effectual grace. Both Calvinists and Arminians teach that God calls people to himself in salvation through the means of the Holy Spirit. And that salvific call, salvific means saving, that salvific saving call is considered an act of grace from God. Calvinists teach that this salvific call is irresistible. And Arminianism teaches that this salvific call is resistible and can be ultimately rejected. Notice Calvinism. God extends common grace to all people. Common grace, that's the reason all people receive both sunshine and rain and air to breathe. Those are manifestations of common grace. All people receive common grace from God. But common grace doesn't save someone. It is salvific grace that saves. And God's salvific grace, according to Calvinism, is directed toward just the elect. And that salvific grace or call cannot 
cannot be resisted. If God elected someone to salvation, then at some point, that elect person will believe. It's inevitable. Arminianism, through prevenient grace from the Holy Spirit, given to all men, man is able to cooperate with God and respond in faith to salvation. But that grace, that salvific call, can be resisted. That grace can be resisted, so some never believe. The final letter is P. P means perseverance of the saints. Also called, a better designation would be preservation of the saints or eternal security. Uh, I recommend preservation of the saints because we don't persevere as much as God perseveres for us. Philippians 1 verse 6 states, God completes our salvation. So this is a preservation of the saints. This final point is the logical outcome of the four preceding tenets of Calvinism. Notice, Calvinism teaches that the elect will be preserved. None of the elect will be lost, meaning that true Christians will continue to profess Jesus Christ until the end. Someone can and probably will over time experience spiritual ups and spiritual downs, but that person doesn't ultimately renounce his Christian profession. True Christians possess a salvation that is secure and eternal. Arminianism teaches Christians can exercise their free will and turn away from Christianity and in doing that forfeit their salvation. I need to add something here. This came to me at one this morning, okay? This is a last second insertion. That sentence is an incomplete definition of the Arminian position. That sentence represents just one half of the Arminian perspective on this subject. Actually, there are two perspectives, two Arminian perspectives on this last point. So jot this down. One, according to Arminianism, someone can lose his salvation through sin. The emphasis is on lose and losing. Someone can lose his salvation through sin. It could be a specific heinous sin. It could be habitual sin, a pattern of sin. Someone can lose his salvation through sin. Second, according to Arminianism, someone can leave his salvation through rejecting the Christian faith. Someone can abandon. Someone can leave. The emphasis is on leaving. Someone can leave his salvation through rejecting the Christian faith. That, if that were to happen, is called apostatizing from the Christian faith. And that person that does that is considered an apostate. I just read about a rich and famous social influencer. I'm not going to mention his name. He just announced he has left Christianity and is now a Muslim. Uh, that is apostatizing from the Christian faith. He is now an apostate. Arminians would see that and argue he has left his salvation. He has forfeited his salvation. 
I would argue he never had salvation. And I understand this man because I, I've, I've seen him. I've listened to interviews. And this, this man never manifested Christian characteristics. So I would argue, I'm sorry I can get it away. I would argue he never had salvation. He was a Christian in name only. I'm trying to be super objective here and not give away my position, okay? This is really hard to do. Because I want to say things and I'm not going to say things. This is really hard to do. All right, so according to Arminianism, someone's salvation isn't necessarily permanent, contingent on the performance of the Christian. I think if you've heard me preach before, you'll know that mm, I don't agree with that. It's interesting that Jacobus Arminius himself couldn't bring himself to renounce or denounce the Calvinistic twist on the preservation of the saints. He couldn't do it. This bothered him. He wasn't as sure about this last point as the Calvinists were, but he was open to that interpretation. And even now, some Arminians agree with Calvinists that true salvation is secure. So, men and women, these are the five points of Calvinism. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance or preservation of the saints. I need to interject another footnote. As we said earlier, neither soteriological system is monolithic. Please understand that there are different degrees of Calvinism and different degrees of Arminianism. Four-point Calvinists are actually extremely common. Uh, Four-point Calvinists are Calvinists that reject limited atonement. It's always the L that four-point Calvinists reject. There are three-point Calvinists. Someone told me recently he was a two-and-a-half-point Calvinist. I, I think he's just confused, but that's me. And not all Arminians agree with the five counter-arguments to Calvinism. As an example, classical Arminianism accepts total depravity. And some Arminians accept preservation of the saints. So sometimes these systems do intersect. So much so, some people consider themselves to be Calminians, which isn't actually a thing. There is an alternative perspective uh, that is um, being accepted now more and more called provisionism. Provisionism. Dr. Leighton Flowers, who is a former Calvinist, created that word to describe this alternative perspective. He discusses provisionism uh, on his podcast called Soteriology 101. Now, he gets deep into the weeds, uh, but it's interesting, especially to those of us that appreciate theology. Uh, Provisionism is, according to him, sort of a hybrid combination perspective, although Calvinists would probably consider it to be just another form of Arminianism. Um, According to Calvinism, you're either a Calvinist or an Arminian. There's there's no other option. I am related to Calvinists. Um, I'm related, close relations to strong, strong Calvinists. Hopi is related to Arminians, strong Arminians, generational Arminians, And we have friends both from both tribes. And we refuse 
to permit this controversy to affect our interpersonal relations. We refuse. We can discuss it. We can converse about it. But we don't fight. Uh, we don't get upset. And I won't permit this debate to be a cause of congregational contention. We need to remember something. All Calvinists that are true Christians, all Arminians that are true Christians, all of them go to heaven. So we need to learn to, you know, get along now. Countless congregations across this nation have divided over this debate, and that is sad. Some of our families uh, moved here from a congregation in Northern California. I know the former pastor. He's now pastoring in Sacramento. He didn't, he's still in California. God bless his soul. Um, he served on our son's ordination council. He is a good, good man. And it was, past tense, a good church. Until a search team was deceived into calling someone that we would see as a hyper-Calvinist. And that's a different animal altogether. In his pharisaical egotistical, Calvinistic arrogance, he established a one-man tyrannical rule. And good families that had been there for decades left. And the church imploded. And months ago was forced to sell a campus evaluated at some $12 million. That is sad. No one should want to see that. I mean, it's fun to debate Calvinism and Arminianism, but we should not let this controversy divide us. Now, people are super curious, and I've tried to be neutral, and want to know, where am I in this controversy? Am I a card-carrying Calvinist? Or, or do I have some Arminian tendencies? Hang on. This is where I am. I am clueless. I don't have a clue. I don't understand how this soteriological thing works because it's unknowable. Now, both sides think they know. I'm convinced neither one of them know, and I'm convinced none of us know. Notice Mark 4, verse 26 and 27. And he, Jesus, said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Verse 27, and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. Remember, he's describing the kingdom of God. Notice, he himself, this farmer, does not know how. I'm ignoring the theological meaning of this analogous narrative so we can see the obvious. A farmer spends hours and hours sowing seed in the field. And then goes home, goes to bed, and sleeps. And this farmer doesn't understand how the seeds he planted sprouts. He, he doesn't understand the process. He just plants the seeds and waits. And waits. And as he waits, the seeds in the ground come to life. The green shoots, the green shoots of the grain break through the ground. And soon the grain is maturing and ultimately harvested, and the farmer doesn't understand how that all happened. But the fact he doesn't understand doesn't concern him, because he doesn't need to understand. 
And I contend we don't need to understand how salvation is transacted. We cannot understand salvation because salvation is a miracle and a miracle according to its definition isn't understandable or it wouldn't be miraculous. This past Sunday, Chris presented a question. Does God choose us or do we choose God? Yes. God chooses us, and we choose God, and we should be okay not understanding that. And besides, understanding salvation isn't essential to the mission Jesus has assigned to us, and that mission is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is presenting people the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, encouraging them to receive Jesus, baptizing them, and then discipling them to spiritual adulthood. That's our mission, not sitting around debating soteriological systems. Check out this slide. It reads, what if neither Calvinism nor Arminianism is completely correct, and I'm being distracted from fulfilling the Great Commission? That is an extremely relevant question. As there are innumerable Christians that are so preoccupied with this controversy that this debate has distracted them from fulfilling the Great Commission. John MacArthur preaches against what he calls comfortable Calvinism. Comfortable Calvinism is this attitude that since the elect are elect and are going to be saved at some point, it's not essential that I participate in that process. Comfortable Calvinism teaches no one's going to hell because I didn't tell them about Jesus. Someone goes to hell because God didn't elect him to heaven. And I agree with John. That's despicable. That's so wrong. We have been commanded. These are our marching orders to tell people about Jesus. The famous 19th century preacher from London and a favorite of all evangelicals, and a Calvinist, Charles Spurgeon. I might add one of the most meaningful places I've ever been is at the campus of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. They have an entire museum dedicated to Charles Spurgeon, artifacts from Spurgeon. His entire library is there, or what's left of his library, some 3,000 books. You can actually go pick out a book off the shelf and see the notes he wrote in the margins of some of those commentaries. I've actually held those books and read his actual words he penned on those pages. It's phenomenal. I'm a Spurgeon fan. No apology. He was the most evangelistic pastor from the entire 19th century. And these quotations are just some samples, some samples of his commitment to the Great Commission. He said this, quote, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. He said this, quote, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unravel all the mysteries of the divine word. For someone's salvation is the one thing we are to live for. He said this, quote, listen carefully, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. 
And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, or least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. People, that is convicting. And shame on us, because none of us in this room resemble that degree of commitment to the Great Commission. Understand something. Calvinism and Arminianism won't matter in heaven. But who we bring with us will matter. And that needs to be our focus. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you. This has been super different. Uh, It's been hard, actually, because I haven't been able to say all that I want to say, but there's not enough time to say it. I, I just pray, God, that this has been helpful in some sense to give each of us a basic understanding of this controversy, this debate. I, I read from Calvinists every week in my life. My library is full of men who are Calvinistic to some degree because they're, they're brilliant men who write books on theology and commentaries. And I read from other men who are Arminians who have a passion for reaching people and discipling and I just, I thank God for both of them. And God, I just pray that we will not pigeonhole ourselves and buttonhole ourselves into one particular camp or the other, but that we can appreciate both sides. Yes, we can determine to be what we feel is right for us, and we should. But God, help us to understand that the family of God is big enough for both of us. And I hope that makes sense. So God, thank you for our time. Please bless it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.